Psalm 50 is powerful. And I tell you, last week, Psalm 49 was a sobering word about death and being ready for death. And this week is a sobering word about taking God seriously. Next week is a sobering word about repentance when you blow it. So if you've ever blown it in life, uh, anybody in here ever blown it besides me? Anybody ever blown it? Uh, even as a Christian, anybody ever blown it? As a Okay, all right. Make sure I'm not the only one. Uh, but uh, Psalm 51, which we'll study next week, is a great word when you've blown it. How to get right with God and, and, and get your heart back on Him and let Him do a cleansing work in you. So we'll study that next week because David wrote it and he really blew it. Adultery, murder, deceit. I mean, you, I mean he, he, he blew it big time. So we're going to talk about how you get right with God next week. So Psalm 50... I'm calling this Taking God Seriously. But before we get into the psalm, just a reminder of what the psalms are all about. Kendall Easley writes, God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion, in personal or community life. That's what these psalms are about. They remind us that whatever comes in life, good or bad, highs or lows, mountaintops or valleys, God is worthy of our worship and He is worthy of our confidence. He is worthy of our trust. And then John Piper picks up on the idea that the psalms are... Songs, they were written to be sung in corporate worship among the people of Israel. And he writes, The Psalms are songs, they are poems, they are written to awaken and express and shape the emotional life of God's people. Poetry and singing exist because God made us with emotions, not just thoughts. Our emotions are massively important. Uh, most people that love the Psalms, and if, you, if you've been a Christian for every, any, any length of time and read your Bible, you love the Psalms. When people say they love the Psalms, they're resonating with the emotional content of the psalms. They, 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 they can identify with the highs and lows that the psalmists uh, are sharing in these, in these pages. And so uh, these psalms engage us at the emotional level and help us to understand how to reverence God and cling to God no matter what our emotions may be doing. And Psalm 50 is all about taking God seriously. So we're going to talk about some pretty heavy stuff tonight, some weighty stuff. It'll probably provoke some questions. We'll have some Q&A time at the end. If, you, if a question comes up, just kind of jot it down uh, on your paper and we get through, you can ask that question. Uh, but, but I want to explain what I mean by taking God seriously. But let's start by reading Psalm 50. It says, A Psalm of Asaph, The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence before Him as a devouring fire. Around Him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that He may judge His people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare His righteousness, for God Himself is judge. Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. And so... He begins by identifying himself and speaking to his people, the people of Israel. And as we see the psalm unfold, it's all about taking God seriously. So let's kind of think about this from a big picture perspective. If you look there in your notes, there are two groups of people in this psalm that will experience God's judgment. Psalm 50 is ultimately about God's judgment. He identifies himself and says, hey, you need to be ready to stand before me. God's judgment. And there are two groups of people in the psalm that will experience God's judgment. First of all, we see God's people experience God's judgment. God's people experience God's judgment. Look what it says in verse 4. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that He may judge His people. Everybody see that? So there is a sense, and I'll explain it in a moment, 
But there is a sense in which God judges His people. In this context, it's the people of Israel, His chosen nation that He made His name known through. In our case, as followers of Christ, as children of Abraham by faith, uh, it talks about the church. And, and, and so uh, judgment can come from God to His people. That's the first group of people we see. Look in verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. So he's clearly talking about his judgment uh, for his uh, people. Now, you say, does God really judge his people? Because maybe you're not familiar with that concept. Well, let me read to you what it says over in 1 Peter, New Testament book, 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4. That's what the Bible says. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. It says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So he's saying, hey, if God's people are judged, think about how much worse it is to be judged and not be one of God's people. And we'll talk some more about that in a few moments. But it's very clear that judgment, God's judgment, does come to the household of God, to His people. So, why is God, back in Psalm 50, why is God judging His people? Why would He do that? Why would He have harsh words, serious words for His people? Well, in this psalm, back in Psalm 50, God rebukes, listen to this, empty religious ritual. If you read your Bible uh, consistently, continually, you will see all throughout His pages that God does not like despises this is a strong word, but it's a probably a good word here. God despises empty religious ritual. He's not impressed by people doing religious stuff when their heart's not in it. Matter of fact, he doesn't like it at all. It, it makes him angry. He rebukes empty religious ritual. Look what it says in verse 8. Not for sacrifices do I rebuke you, nor your burnt offerings are continually before me. So he said to his people, hey, you're doing the stuff, you're doing the religious ritual stuff, you're bringing sacrifices, you're keeping your religious vows, you're coming to the the temple, you are keeping the Sabbath. I mean, you're doing all of these religious rituals. So, So what's he upset about? Well, look what it says in verse 14. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the most high. And then you look at the end of the psalm. Look what it says in verse 23. The one who offers thanksgiving as a sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. So here's the problem that God is addressing in Psalm 50. People were going through the motions of religion, but they didn't have hearts overflowing with gratitude for God. Their, their heart wasn't in it. Have you ever found yourself, and let's just be honest, let's, just, let's be transparent tonight. Have you ever found yourself doing something religious when your heart wasn't in it? Sure, we all have. We all have. And that was what was happening among God's people. And so let me ask you some questions to, to see if this may be an issue in your own life. Question number one, is your worship a habit or is it heartfelt? Is your worship a habit or is it heartfelt? And, and by your worship, I mean what you do for the Lord. Right. Attending church, uh, sharing your faith, uh, being a steward of what God has given you, um, serving others, 
you know, we could go through the list of what it means to, to serve God and live for the Lord. Do you do those things out of habit, by reading your Bible, praying? Do you, do you do those things out of habit or is it heartfelt? Is your heart engaged in it? Here's another question. Is your worship routine or reverent? Is it routine or reverent? Third question, is your worship meant to manipulate or magnify? It seems that what's happening here among the people of Israel is they thought, hey, if I do all the religious stuff, then God is obligated to bless me. You ever been there in your own life? He got to do all the right stuff, so bless me, bless away. Or I'm doing all the right stuff, so why am I going through hard times? I uh, heard a testimony this past Friday night at, at CR. This lady shared a very powerful testimony at Celebrate Recovery. And it was, it was really incredible. But she said she grew up with bad theology. And, and, and her theology, she grew up in church, very involved. But in, as a teenager, she thought, if I'm doing all the right stuff, if I'm going to church, checking my boxes, then God is obligated to do to do good for me and obligated to keep me away from harm. And so when she went through something difficult... And we all go through difficult things because we live in a sin-cursed world. When she went through something difficult, she didn't have a category for that. She, so she got mad at God and walked away. Her theology was bad. Just ask Job. You can serve the Lord and still go through unexplained suffering, right? Listen, this ain't heaven. And, until we get to heaven, you can expect suffering. You can expect hardship. We live in a sin-cursed world. You're surrounded by sinners. And guess what? you got your own issues. Right? And, and there are things like natural disasters and, and illnesses and all of this because we live in a fallen world, a fallen creation. And, and, and so the people of Israel are saying, Hey God, I'm bringing my vows, I'm bringing my offerings, I'm paying my tithes, I'm coming to temple, you are obligated to treat me right. And they were really going through the motions to try to twist God's arm to do what they thought He should do. That's called manipulation. You know what that is? That's pagan worship. That's what the pagans do. Pagan uh, world religions, they, they try to do all the right things to, to get their God to you know, do what they want Him to do for them. Okay? And so is your worship meant to manipulate? God, I'm here. Make my life better. Or do you worship and serve because God is great and He deserves it? There, there's a big difference there. Big difference. So... When God sees His people living in empty religious ritual, He comes to judge. He comes to get our attention. Which leads to this question. How does God judge His people? Because maybe you're here tonight and say, I don't think God judged His people. But right here He's saying, He, he says it very clearly there uh, in verse 4. He calls the heavens above to the earth that He may judge His people. Pretty clear, right? So how does God judge His people? Well, there are at least two ways that God judges His people to get their attention, to, to, to shake them from their lethargy and complacency. So instead of just going through the motions, they are serving God with a heart full of love and adoration for Him. How does He judge? First of all, discipline. Discipline. Hebrews 12, chapter, uh, verses 4 through 11, remind us, that when we are followers of Christ, we become, at the moment of conversion, children of God, which makes God our what? Our, we're children of God. He's our Father. Right. We're adopted. Right? Really good news. I love that 
picture of being a child of God. But Hebrews reminds us, hey, if God's your father, expect him to act like a father. And sometimes that's going to mean disciplining his children to get their attention, to get them back on the right path. And, and, and the writer of Hebrews is quick to say, listen, it's a reflection of his love. Whom he loves, he disciplines. So why do I discipline my kids? I say, hey, don't go play in the street. Am I trying to take away their fun? No, I know that if they play in the street, they could be destroyed. Destruction, right? Why does God give us prohibitions? To take away our fun? Does he? No. He made us. He knows what's best for us. He knows what destructive behavior looks like. So he says, hey, don't do these things because you'll, be, you'll be destroyed by them. But if he sees you edging over in the direction of things you ought not to be involved in, expect God to act like a father. And he will discipline you and get your attention, take you through difficult times, brokenness, to get your attention so you'll stop going the right way and we'll start going, uh, start, stop going the wrong way and start going the right way. And when God disciplines you, when He breaks you, when He takes you through something difficult, it's a reflection of His love. So I found in my, my own experience, when my father, who loves me, uh, wants to get my attention, he will often take me through something very hard and it's no fun. Matter of fact, over in Hebrews it says, hey, discipline for the season is, is, very, um, uh, is very painful. It's not pleasant at all. But... God used it to get my attention. Has, there, has God ever gotten your attention before? Raise your hand if God's ever gotten your attention before. Listen to me. That's not God being mean. That's God being a loving father. That's what fathers do, right? They protect their kids. They warn their kids. They discipline their kids if necessary to get them on the right path. And so how does God judge his people? Well, discipline. Discipline can be a reflection of God's judgment. You're not serving him with a wholehearted devotion, so it gets your attention so that you will begin doing that. Secondly, another way that God judges His people is through distance. Distance. Over in Exodus chapter 33, verses 15 and 16, Moses is praying, and they're getting ready to, to leave out and uh, follow the Lord into the wilderness over towards the promised land. And Moses makes an interesting statement. He says, God... If you don't go with us, we don't want to go. In other words, if God, if you're distant from us, we will experience failure and heartache and pain. We want you to be near us. We don't want you to be distant from us. You remember what happened to the people of Israel in Numbers when they sent 12 spies into the promised land to spout the land? They came back and... The 12 men said, oh, it's, it's just like God said. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. Uh, it's, it's, it's a beautiful land. But there are giants there, powerful peoples, powerful cities, fortified cities. We don't think we have what it takes to drive them out of the land. And so we should not go in. Now, 10 of the 12 said we shouldn't go. Two of the 12, Joshua and Caleb, said we should go. Obey God and we should go. But remember, the people voted with the 10. They said, no, if there are giants and and big cities and, and, and warlike people, we don't want to go. And so they disobeyed God. It did not go into the promised land. And then through Moses, God said, Hey, listen, uh, since you chose not to go, you're going to wander in the wilderness for how long? How long? Forty years until this generation dies off, and then I'll take those, uh, I'll take your children, I'll take them in the promised land. 
Everybody except Joshua and Caleb died off and did not get to go into the promised land. Well, when Moses told them that, they said, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, we'll go, we'll go, we'll go. And Moses says, you better not. God's not with you. You're going to go into the wilderness. And they said, no, no, we'll go. And, and they got their army together, and they went and attacked the city, and they were decimated. They lost the battle. You know why? God wasn't with them. Moses said, if you go, you're going by yourself. You'll be decimated. And God kept his distance, and his people went through something very, very difficult. Sometimes, when it comes to his people, individuals, families, churches, if, if his people are not serving him in spirit and in truth, God can and will and has, he can just take his hand off, can he? And say, try it in your own strength. Try it in your own wisdom. And we know how that goes, right? Not so good. And so sometimes God's judgment for His people to get their attention will be, hey, see how you do without me. And God will keep His distance and let you fail to show you you can do nothing apart from Christ, right? So that's what judgment looks like. And we're talking, not talking about eternal judgment here. If you've been saved in Jesus Christ, Jesus took your judgment for you. You don't have to go to hell. You go to heaven because Jesus paid the penalty for you. But here in this life, even as born-again followers of Jesus, if we go the wrong direction, God will judge His people to get their attention, to get them back on the right track. And again, that's a reflection of His grace. It's a reflection of His love. It's painful, but it's because God cares. Listen, if God didn't care, He would just let us, just let us go without any kind of intervention or concern. But we see here that God will judge His people. So, the first group of people in this psalm that will experience God's judgment are God's people. Secondly, the second group of people that will experience God's judgment are the wicked. Look in verse 16. There's a shift in Psalm 50. Look what it says in verse 16. After he talks about dealing with his people, he says, But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on, on your lips? He says, for you hate discipline, you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you're pleased with him. You keep company with adulterers. He goes on rebuking what he calls the wicked. I believe the first part of the psalm is God's, God's word of judgment for his people, the people of Israel. And there's application for us as followers of Christ. I believe the second part of the psalm is for those who are not his people, those who are, uh, are lost, the wicked he calls them. So this would be God's judgment for those that are unsaved. Okay? And that's how we would apply it in today's context. So what is the issue that God's dealing with here among the wicked? Well, if you look there in your notes, people that take God seriously will not live in continual hypocrisy. And the people he's talking to here were living in hypocrisy, which meant they weren't taking God seriously. And he calls them wicked. So the the sin that God is speaking against here is the, the sin of hypocrisy. Now, we all know what hypocrisy is, right? Hypocrisy is uh, acting. It, it, it comes from the Greek word, Greek word hypocritos. In, in the Greek culture, they would take masks in their plays. And if they were in a Greek tragedy, they would put on a sad mask. If they were in a comedy, they'd put on a happy mask. And that word came to be used for those who were putting on a mask and acting like someone they really weren't. Hypocrites. So that, that's what the word means. Now, what does hypocrisy look like? 
because he's judging them here, calling them wicked. First of all, hypocrites say one thing and do another. Hypocrites say one thing and do another. Look what it says in verse 16. But to the wicked God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. So they were talking the talk, but they weren't walking the walk. You know what that is? That's hypocrisy, right? Talking the talk, not walking the walk. They, they could talk about God's commands and God's statutes, but they were not true followers. They were uh, not His people. They were wicked. So hypocrites say one thing and do another. Secondly, hypocrites know God's standards but ignore them. Look what it says in verse 18. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, but I've been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. So he mentions here some of the sins of the hypocrites. And he mentions three of the big ten, the Ten Commandments. Which three commandments do we see in those verses? Somebody talk to me. Which, 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 which of the Ten Commandments were they violating? Adultery. adultery. All right, don't commit adultery. So they were witness. False witness. And what's the other one? Idols. What's that? Idols. Say it again. Idols. Oh, idols. Yeah, idols. Yeah. Uh, that, that's implied here in the text. Um, false, false speech, lying, when it says don't um, slander. Um, slander your own mother's son. And then verse 18... If you see a thief, you're pleased with him. So what commandment is that violating? Do not steal, right? Okay, so he's mentioning some, some of the commandments. So these people knew God's commandments, but they were ignoring those. They were ignoring what God said. And we see this is a New Testament issue as well. Look with me over in Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23. Matthew 23. Look in verse 25. Woe to you. These are the words of Jesus. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. These were the religious folks. These are the folks that knew their Bible. They went to church. They tithed. They fasted twice a week. These were the religious folks. And he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Hypocrites, for you tithe, mint, and dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So these Pharisees, these religious leaders, they could quote the Bible, they just didn't obey it. That's hypocrisy, right? 
They were living in rampant wickedness and rebellion against God. And that is hypocrisy. So hypocrites know God's standards, but ignore them. And one final thing about hypocrites. Hypocrites underestimate God's character. Look back in Psalm 50, verse 21. This is a really interesting verse. These things you have done, participating in lying and adultery and stealing... These things you have done, and I have been silent. In other words, I have been patient with you, giving you opportunity to repent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. So he said, because I was silent and gave you time to repent, I was patient with you, you took that to mean that I don't care. You thought I was like you. You underestimated my character is what God's saying. You forgot I was holy and righteous and just. And you carried on a life of sin. And so, these are all statements about hypocrites. Now, how does God judge the wicked? Because I'm going to show you in a few moments that this is about God coming in judgment. How does God judge the wicked? We talked about how He judges the saved, His people. How does God judge the wicked? Well, let me give you a couple of thoughts here. Three. First is passive wrath. Passive wrath. And this is similar to God keeping His distance for the believer... But passive wrath is when God lets an unbeliever go the direction they want to go so that they can experience the consequences of that. Over in Galatians 6 it says, What a man sows, he will also what? Reap. Consequences for their sin. And sometimes God will will, stand back and let a sinner go in the wrong direction so that they can experience the pain of those consequences. I think a good example of this is the parable of the prodigal son over in Luke 15. Remember the son came to his dad in a very disrespectful manner and said, I want my inheritance now. So whatever I get when you die, I want it now. And you know what the father did? I know what my father would have done. Or would do. I wouldn't be getting the inheritance, but... But this father gave the inheritance. And he let him go. And he loses it all. The father knew what was going to happen. He gets involved in wild living and loses everything. He finds himself eating pig slop. Remember that story, Luke 15? And there's a very interesting phrase that says, when he's eating the pig slop, it says, he came to his senses. So God... Passive wrath, I'm going to let you go the direction you want to go so that you will come to your senses. This is a terrifying thing that God will let you go the direction you want to go when it's the wrong direction. That's wrath. And God will do that with unbelievers to get their attention. And so that's passive wrath. The second kind of wrath we see against the wicked is active wrath. Active wrath. I mean, think Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Wicked cities. And God judges them with fire and brimstone. He destroys them. That's His active intervention in, uh, in human history to judge a group of people that are evil. And, and God will sometimes use active wrath to judge those who are wicked. Let me show you an example of this in the New Testament. Uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And just hold your place there because we're going to talk about the next point as well. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 5. This is Paul writing to the believers in Thessalonica. He says, This is evidence 
of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. So it's saying to the Christians here, hey, you're being persecuted, but you need to understand that God's going to afflict your persecutors. Now, how did God do that? We have no idea. But that's act of wrath, where God actively intervenes and judges someone living here on this earth in a devastating, decimating way. That's act of wrath. And that's a, that's a scary thought as well, isn't it? That God would run out of patience with someone who's wicked and turn their back to Him, and He will actively cause His wrath to come upon them here in this life. Now, the third type of wrath we see for the wicked is eternal wrath. Passive wrath, active wrath, eternal wrath. And right back there in 2 Thessalonians, look what it says in verse 7. God will afflict those who afflict you, and He will grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look in verse 9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Here's what He's saying. Those that are unsaved, when Jesus comes back, they will be assigned to their eternal destiny in hell, separated from God, where they will experience the unending destruction and torment and wrath of the Lord. That's a terrifying thought. Hell is real. And let me tell you one of the ways we know hell is real. Jesus taught about hell. Jesus taught about hell in, in more than one place. And, and the, the biblical picture of hell is you're separated from God, you are in conscious torment. And it never ends. That's hell. And it's a reality for those that do not know the Lord. And so uh, we need to be saying to a lost and dying world, you need Jesus to be saved from your sins, to be saved from eternity in that awful place called hell. And so back in Psalm 50, God has a word for His people. He has a word for the wicked who are living in hypocrisy. And... We know that God judges, and He judges through His passive, active, and eternal wrath. Now, back to Psalm 50. If that's the case, if God is God, and if God judges His people and the wicked, then we probably ought to start taking God seriously. What do you think? We shouldn't treat God in a trivial and frivolous manner. He's God. So, how can people begin to take God seriously? What does it look like to take God seriously, the God of Psalm 50? How, how do you take God seriously? Well, number one, you need to understand God's nature. Understand God's nature. A lot of people don't want to take God seriously because they think God is just kind of this grandpa figure in the sky, right? And, and they're not intimidated by that idea of God. Um, the Bible paints a very different picture of God. For example, in the psalm, we learn that God is mighty. Look in Psalm 50, verse 1. Psalm of Asaph, the mighty one, the mighty one, God the Lord. Now this is a pretty cool verse because if you look at the Hebrew, there are different names for God used here. For example, when it says the mighty one, that's the uh, Hebrew word El, which means God of might or God of power. And then when it says God there, the mighty one God, that's the word uh, Elohim. Then it says 
the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's the name Yahweh, the divine name of God, the name he gives to Moses at the burning uh, bush, his revealed name. Then in verse 14, there's another name for God. It says, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. That Hebrew word translated Most High is the uh, phrase El Elyon, the Most High. He's higher than the High. He's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. He's the God of Gods, right? He's higher than everyone and everything else. And so these are different names of God. And they all point to this reality that God is mighty. He's not a a weak um, God. He's a mighty God, a powerful God. He is an all powerful God. So we need to understand God's nature. Now, hey, quick parenthetical thought here. Um, If your prayer life has gotten a little stale, and by that I mean you find yourself saying the same old thing about the same old thing or saying, you know, just repeating your words, uh, try using the Psalms to enhance your prayer life, to energize your prayer life. For example, uh, instead of just saying throughout your prayer, Lord, 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 or Father, 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 Father. Saying that nothing wrong with those titles. Those are biblical titles, and and I use them. We should all use them because Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father who's in heaven, we we call Him Lord as we ought to. But sometimes your your prayer life can can grow stale, and you're not even thinking about what you're saying. You ever found yourself there? You're saying all these things, but you're not even your mind's not even engaged. Try using some biblical titles for God. For example, next time you pray in the morning. Call God the mighty one. God, you are the mighty one. All of a sudden, you've got a, a more dynamic prayer life, don't you? Or call God the Lord Most High. Just, just use these titles that the Bible gives us to address God. There's one in, in the Psalms I read in my quiet time. And I can't remember exactly what Psalm it is. It's Psalm 60-something. But right there, uh, I read it says, You are the God who answers prayer. Well, this is a great title for God, isn't it? God, and I've been using that in my own prayer life. God, I'm thankful you're the God who answers prayer. So these things can help to really uh, accentuate your prayer life. Uh, But God is mighty. We see that here as we think about His nature. Secondly, or this speaks of His effortless power. Speaks of His effortless power. By effortless, I mean God is not in some... um, God is not striving to keep control of the universe. He has control. He has all power. Okay? A lot of times when we talk about spiritual warfare, uh, we have the mistaken notion that spiritual warfare is kind of like a tug of war, and you got the Lord on one end and Satan on the other end, and they're kind of tugging back and forth, and you know, Satan wins some battles, and then the, the Lord wins some battles, and there's this kind of that that is an unbiblical picture of spiritual warfare. God is not in a tug of war with Satan. God is in perfect control. And anything Satan does, God allows it. He's on a he's on a leash. And one day God's gonna throw Satan into the lake of fire. Right? So don't think of it as a tug of war. He has all power. It's effortless. It's just who he is. All right? He's the creator of the universe. So secondly, God is mighty. Secondly, God keeps the universe running right on schedule. Look in verse 1. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. So God made it all and God speaks to it so that the sun comes up and the sun goes down. So this, mean, this speaks of His creation and preservation. God made it all by His Word and He holds it all together. It says in Hebrews 1, by the Word of His power. Upholds all things by the Word of His power. God is holding it all together. He's a preserving God. Third, God is light. Look in verse 2. Out of Zion, 
the place where God caused His presence to dwell, the perfection of beauty, talking about the city there, God shines forth. We see this metaphor all throughout the Bible that God is light. Over in First uh, uh, John, it says that God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. So the, the metaphor of light is to speak of His purity. This speaks of His perfect character. His perfect character. Listen to me, and you need to hear this. I mean, I know you know this and you'll amen this, but you need to hear this often. God doesn't make mistakes. God never says oops. Ever. All right? He's never wringing his hands in worry or anxiety. God does everything perfectly. Over in Psalm 119, it says God is good and he does good. And so he's light. It speaks of his perfect character. Hey, God's never thought a wrong thought. He's never said a wrong word. He's never performed a wrong action. He's never had a wrong motivation. He's perfect. He's perfect. I mean, I can't put five minutes together like that, can you? God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. Next, God is a burning fire. Look in verse 3. Our God comes, He does not keep silence. Before Him is a devouring fire. A devouring fire. And again, fire is used in the Bible as a picture of judgment. You know, Fire purifies. If you take a a metal and you put it in enough heat, then the impurities of that metal will rise to the surface. And that's a picture. God is a consuming fire. This speaks of His purifying presence. When God comes, He comes to set things right. Amen? Let me say it again because that was weak. When God comes, He comes to set things right. Amen? Amen? He's a burning fire. Next, God is a raging storm. Look in verse 3. Before Him is a devouring fire. Around Him a mighty tempest. A mighty tempest. The idea of a, of a storm surrounding Him. This speaks of His terrifying presence. His terrifying presence. Let me tell you how terrifying God's presence is. Over in Revelation chapter 20... When it talks about the great white throne of judgment, it says that the Lord is sitting on the throne, the great white throne of judgment. And it says His presence is so terrifying that the heavens and the earth, the elements flee from Him. That's how terrifying His presence is. To, to, listen, to think that people can come into the presence of God without a mediator is, is, is lunacy. If someone thinks they can just... You know, a lot of people think, hey, when I die... You know, sure, I've, I've messed up. Sure, I've made some mistakes. But God's going to say, hey, you know what? You did, you did the best you could. Come on into heaven. And they're just going to go traipsing into heaven and God's going to wink at their sin. And They don't understand the Bible. He, he's surrounded by a great tempest. He's, his, listen, his, his presence, apart from a mediator to bring you into His presence, forgiven, Jesus. If you don't have Jesus, His presence is terrifying. You hear people say, well, hey, you know, when, uh, you know, I'm just going to live it up, and when I die, I'm going to party with my buddies. We're going to have a big party down in hell. We're going to live it up. And listen to me. Those arrogant folks are going to one day be in the terrifying presence of God, and they will be on their face with fear and trembling. And so we see here this tempest that surrounds him. Now, most, belie- most believers, most scholars believe that these first verses of Psalm 50 are taken from the imagery of Mount Sinai. If you read 
the story of the Israelites coming through the Red Sea and going to Mount Sinai where God called Moses on the mountain and gave them the Ten Commandments. If you remember, it says that God came down on the mountain with some of the same imagery. A fire, a burning fire, consuming fire, a storm, thunder and lightning. And so... Scholars believe that he's using that imagery here to speak of God. The the same God that came down on Mount Sinai is the same God that everyone will have to stand before one day. Now think about that. The same God. That's the imagery that he's using. So that leads to the last thing. God is judge. Verse 4. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge, Selah. So God is judge. This speaks of our accountability to God. Everyone, whether they're a born-again Christian or an angry atheist, everyone will stand before God one day and give an account. Everyone. This speaks of our accountability to God. We dare not take him lightly. So, the first thing, if you're going to take God seriously, is you need to understand who he is. He's not a grandfather sitting on some cosmic rocking chair winking at our sin. He is a holy, righteous God. He is a glorious, majestic God. We dare not trifle with the God of the universe. Amen? Secondly, how do you take God seriously? Repent of your sins and enter into a relationship with God. So you understand, hey, God's holy and I'm not. God is perfect and I'm not. God is righteous and I'm not. You know you need some help. Because you're not going to go into God's presence, God's holy presence with, with sin in your life that has not been taken care of. So, we see in this psalm that God rebukes so the wicked will repent. Look what it says in verse 21 of this psalm. Verse 21. These things you have done, talking to the wicked here, the hypocrites, and I have been silent... You thought I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Why does God rebuke them? To get their attention. So they repent and get right with God. And God intersects our lives to show us our need for a Savior. Now one thing I remember about my salvation experience is I remember I was sitting with my pastor at my dining room table and he had his Bible open. He was walking me through some different verses. And when he read Romans 6.23, it's like... It's like, a, it's like God just gripped my heart. And that, that, that verse says, the wages of sin is death. I was nine years old and I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that I was a sinner in need of a Savior. I mean, God just used that verse in my life in a mighty way. Then it goes on to say, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So why does God talk about our sin? Why, why does He want us to understand there's none righteous, no, not one? Why? So that we'll understand we need help, Right? And run to his remedy. So God rebukes so the wicked will repent. Secondly, we enter into a relationship with God on the basis of sacrifice. So God is holy. He's perfect. He's light. He's devouring fire. He's tempest, right? But you can have a relationship with him. And look what it says. It tells us this in verse 4. Verse 4. I'm sorry, verse 5. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by what? Sacrifice. Now listen to me. The only way you can come into the presence of God is by sacrifice. Your sin must be dealt with. 
Your sin must be atoned for. And you can't deal with it yourself. Someone else has to deal with it for you. And you know who did that? Jesus. That's why he came to earth. He went and he died on the cross as our sacrifice, taking the punishment for our sins. So if we come to, to, to the Lord based on sacrifice, sacrifice of Christ, we are reconciled, our sins are forgiven, and we are brought into a relationship with God. So if, you're going to take, if you take God seriously, you'll understand you should not walk, you should run to the Savior, right? Because you don't want to stand before that God with sin in your life that has not been dealt with. Because if you stand before that God with sin in your life that has not been dealt with, you will pay for it in that awful place called hell forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. So, repent of your sins, enter into a relationship with God. Which leads to the third thing. How do you take God seriously? You've got to know who He is. You've got to repent of your sins and, and come to God based upon sacrifice, sacrifice of Christ. Which, by the way, the sacrifice of Psalm 50, the sacrificial system was symbolic, pointing to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's why the sacrificial system was in place. But here's the third thing. Participate in wholehearted worship. If you're a believer in Christ, if you're born again, if you're one of God's people, then you should take God seriously by participating in wholehearted worship. Now, what does wholehearted worship look like? Very quickly. Number one, wholehearted worship is filled with gratitude. Look in verse 14. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Perform your vows to the Most High. Look in verse 23. The one who offers thanksgiving as a sacrifice glorifies me. So here's what God's looking for. He's not looking for empty religious ritual. He's looking for folks that serve Him, that love Him, and are grateful. That worship Him because they are so grateful for what He has done for them. Wholehearted worship is filled with gratitude. Are you a grateful person? Are you grateful to God for what He's done? Secondly, wholehearted worship is focused on outward displays of devotion. Look in verse 14. Offer to God a, a, sacrifice, a, a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Perform your vows to the Most High. So here's what he's saying. Hey, I, I don't want outward, outward religious acts with no engaged heart. But once your heart is engaged, I do want you to serve me. Pay your vows. Do what, do what I tell you to do. You, you know, uh, come into church. Read your Bible. Pray. Serve others. Be steward of what God has given you. Serve me. And so, wholehearted worship is focused on outward displays of devotion. If you really love the Lord, you will demonstrate that with a grateful heart that, that moves you to want to be involved in the Lord's work. Faithfully serving Him. Living for Jesus. A life that is true, as the old hymn says. You ever heard someone say... Well, I, I worship God at home. I worship God at home. I, I don't need to go to church to worship God. Well, I hope you worship God at home. If you're a Christian, you ought to. I mean, you know, every day is a day of worship, amen? But if you're, if you're, if you're truly born again, there's going to be a desire to serve Him and let people see your outward displays of devotion that line up with your grateful heart. And so... Wholehearted worship is focused on outward displays of devotion. Third, wholehearted worship is founded on dependence. Look in verse 9. Or verse 8. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? In other words, here's what he's saying. Don't think by your 
by your observance of the sacrificial system that you're doing me a favor. That's what God's saying. I don't need your tithes. I don't need your alms. I don't need the, the blood of a bull, a blood of bull, a goat, or a calf. I don't need that. That's not what it's about. It's not for me. It's for you. It's to point you to, to eternal spiritual realities. In other words, God is saying, listen, I don't need you. You need me. And wholehearted worship is founded on dependence. Sometimes we think that when we're serving God, we're doing God a favor, don't we? I've heard people in churches before, uh, they'll say something like, uh, hey, they made a change at that church, and I don't like the change they made, and so uh, I'm going to stop giving. As if God needs your money. How, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, amen? Or, I'm not going to go anymore. We'll see what they'll do now. Guess what? God's kingdom will keep right on marching on. All of us in this room are indispensable. Can I get an amen? amen? Listen, God doesn't need us. We need Him, right? Huge difference. And He's saying here, don't go through the motions of religiosity thinking that you're doing me a favor. You are worshiping as a reflection of what I've done for you as, a, as you have a heart overflowing with gratitude and dependence. J.M. Boyce writes, to suppose that our worship contributes anything to God or meets a need in God is the height of absurdity. We need to see that. And here's the last thing, fourth thing. Wholehearted worship is fueled by desire for God's glory. Look at verse 15. Verse 15, he says, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I don't need you, you need me. Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. The, 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 the heart of worship in all of our lives should be a desire to see God's name glorified. That's why we worship. That's why we do missions. That's why we do evangelism. That's why we invite people to Easter Sunday because we want to see God's name worshipped by more and more people. Why? He's worthy of that worship. He's worthy of worship from every person, every tribe, every tongue, every language, every person in Hernando. He's worthy of their worship. And we want to see the name of Jesus become more and more famous in this area and all around the world as the gospel goes forth. Amen? It's not about us. It's about His glory. That's why we do what we do. It's all about Him. And wholehearted worship is fueled by desire for God's glory. I would be bored by worship that's all about me. Wouldn't you? And that'd get boring after a while. But if worship is about Him, that's thrilling. If you serve because of Him and His fame, that's thrilling. That's something bigger than you that you can engage your heart and your life in. So participate in wholehearted worship. So I, I, I just really believe, and I've, I think I've looked at every verse with you tonight, and I've come at this psalm from as many directions as I know how to come at this psalm from. But, but listen to me. I, I believe the major theme of Psalm 50 is this. Take God seriously. My people, take me seriously. Wicked, take me seriously. God is God, and we need to understand how big and transcendent and majestic and righteous and holy He is. And if we'll do that, we'll understand that and respond to His Word and respond to our Savior, Jesus Christ, then we will see a life that, that matters and a life of wholehearted worship.